Welcome to Building the Oracle, a podcast about two dudes building a publishing house and film studio from the ground up with little more than elbow grease and an itch that feels like the beginnings of tendonitis. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And I'm Richard Bilkey. And today's guest is a friend who you may recognize from my vlog, New York Times bestselling author, Natasha Nyen. Today we talked about her publishing career, her history with two publishers, a couple different publishers, which is really interesting because a lot of authors do not talk about the fact that they didn't get along with their first agent very well or that things might not have come to a successful close. So that's a very unique element to today's podcast. But we also talked about what it's like to be a New York Times bestselling author what it's like to work and write with chronic illness, to move abroad and to work in a completely new space. A lot of really interesting stuff. And obviously she's a really good friend. And so we just had a good time and laughed a lot. For you, Richard, what was one of the more interesting things that popped out? I thought it was a really interesting conversation. There were a lot of different things that I was really excited to talk to Natasha about. But one thing that that um, really stuck out to me was the fact that she had, uh, in her previous life, before she was publishing her books, she had a million followers on, was it Instagram or YouTube or? Well, it was most actually through her blog. Through her blog, sorry, yeah. her blog, that's right. And, you know, doing a fashion blog and she basically walked away from it. And the reasons why she did that, you know, here she was at the top of, you know, what everyone would say is, is success. But yeah, I thought the reasons why she, she did that and the, the, the decision she made to do that, I thought was, was really interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating to talk to her. Before we dive into today's episode, we want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Oxygen. I had an entire thing written for this, a little bit of a gag sponsor, but today's episode is already long enough as it is, so we're going to scrap that just to remind you that, you know, we, we do love breathing. With that, let's get into today's conversation with our good friend, Natasha Nyan. Welcome to Building the Oracle. I'm your host, Jay Swanson, and today we're lucky to be joined by one of my best friends in Paris. Natasha Nyan. Hi, Natasha. Hello. <laughs> it's good to have you here. If you follow along on my YouTube channel, you've seen Natasha join me for adventures all over Paris, including a recent French Friday where she showed me the ins and outs of her neighborhood near Canal Saint-Martin. But we've also traveled abroad together, including last year in New Orleans to support the release of her first book in her new series, Girls of Paper and Fire. It crushed it on the young adult list, made it to the New York Times bestsellers list, which we were super excited about. And the second book in her series, Girls of Storm and Shadow, is out now and available for purchase. So pause the podcast right now and go purchase it before continuing on. Wherever books are available. Do it. <laughs> Literally waiting for you to... Okay, if you, assuming you've gone and done that, Natasha, welcome to the show. How are you on podcasts in general? I'm good. I'm, I enjoy them. I, it's like, I, I feel like the best ones are conversations between friends, but this is the first time I'm actually getting to have a proper conversation with a proper friend i hope no other podcasters who thought they were friends with you out <laughs> okay. there. that was my exact thought <laughs> no i'm friends with them now but <laughs> the conversation makers podcast is creating conversation uh, creating friends out of conversations we're, all we're creating the world. drama is what we're here to do <laughs> yeah. oh, I, look the, i think the best place to start is is with your books and maybe for people who have just gone and Purchase ordered yours, a book yeah. they've just <laughs> gone and done it um so when they pick the book up, what can they expect? What are they getting themselves in for? Yeah, so Girls of Paper and Fire is um, it's kind of it's a fantasy world inspired by my um, my cultural heritage. So I'm half Chinese, um, Malaysian, half English, and I grew up in a lot. Of, well, I spent a lot of time in Malaysia when I was young, and um, it's so it's a kind of a it's this Asi Asian inspired fantasy world where there's a demon king, and every year he takes um, eight human girls to be his concubines, and it is the story of two of the girls um, who are his concubines falling in love and it kind of gets a bit more, um, you know, warry, epic fantasy uh, as it goes on. But yeah, it's, it's um, the lesbian uh, lovers um, fighting the patriarchy, I guess. <laughs> Sounds pretty fun. That's basically yeah. my story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, no comment on that one. Um, <laughs> and actually, the, the the girls series that wasn't they're not the first books you published. Uh, so no. you, you had a few before that. And have you had, had any? So tell us the the two books you published yeah, before. Yeah. So everyone always thinks that they're my debut. Um, That's why it's nice to go on a friend's podcast. Yes, Ha-ha. exactly. <laughs> this is one of the first times. I guess I'm talking about them. So the oh my god, I have to remember what these books were because it was such a long time. Something ago. about the elites <laughs> and something about memories. Yes, I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so my first book, um, The Elites, was they're both published in the UK um, and Australia by Hockey Books. Um, and the second one, Memory Keepers, is published as well in, G- in German. It got a translation deal. And so the first one was the first novel actually I'd ever written and didn't really expect it to get published. But um, I sent it out the traditional way, got an agent, got a publisher very quickly. And then um, the second one, Memory Keepers, they're both sort of sci-fi things as well and then they kind of <laughs> don't want to say the word tanked but they're, <laughs> they're out there but they're not <laughs> i read the elites um, did you yeah, yeah. Oh. i read it when i first met you before really? this is the, yeah i was the only one, was the one that i tried to impress it's, like her. it's definitely your first book it's definitely your yeah first right book. yeah no yeah. it was enjoyable there were parts of it that were really enjoyable parts of it that i was like huh? and then, yeah yeah but, but that, no. what was fun actually when i think about it was i just wrote that for myself like That's i great. did not think like every chapter i came to i was just like what do i want to like what fun setting do i want to do like what kind of you know like and yeah. there was the, there was barely any there was like no editing let's just say between that's that the part that's i think that that's the part that does kind of that when it's like the uh, it's like the editing is oh where yeah it i mean it's so but important it has a lot of that has that i think what it what it carries that also carries over into girls is that sense of it does seem like you're you're just having fun with what you're writing yeah and that's really important yeah you get that that's i mean that's that's an interesting uh i didn't realize that that was your first book i mm-hmm. thought perhaps there was a you know the destral um manuscripts you'd written before as well no that came after <laughs> right okay so you, okay. After, Wait, yeah. after publication do you have some that are that got that got binned that never made it to publication yes. yeah yeah i and I think this is why it's also so important to talk about because I always thought that once you got published, that was it. Like that was kind of the, you would get there and then you would stay there. But no, it's like very common for authors to write books that don't don't find a, a publisher. So I did, after the first two books, I wrote a third book, which was a urban fantasy, Echo Bound. Um, I still really love it, but anyway. And it was um, it was set in Cambridge, because well, that's where I went to university, and it was this secret group of uh, messengers who took messages between the living and the dead. And yeah, we, my, me and my agent never really, um, we went on submission, we didn't, we didn't find anyone. Um, this was kind of at the same time, I was having troubles with my agent because mm. I also also changed literary agent. So that was, I mean, she is this your old literary agent then? That was yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a very small list, and she didn't. After it, like we got some no's. She was like, let's just stop. Whereas you, you really should try and right. continue after the first round. Exhaust but your options. Yeah, right? but anyway, that was yeah, that was another <laughs> no, no <laughs> another hard feelings there. <laughs> that's more drama that we can water <laughs> under the bridge. Yeah, but yeah, so I, I did that was that's my shelved manuscript. Yep. Um, and it seems to be rearing its head lately in a way like I have ideas of um, how I've got a new idea for a middle grade series actually but it could sort of draw a lot of inspiration from that manuscript so yeah. nothing you write is ever wasted. No I think a lot of authors talk about the boneyard or or you know these ideas yeah. these things they've mm-hmm. written that that they may not be published in that format but they they provide a lot of you know oh I need a character or I need a plot device or I need something and they pull yeah. it out of the book yeah that they've you know the things they've written before yeah I got lots of questions that just sprung from that little yeah. section there I think one I, I'm really interested to know having 
had that sort of initial because because uh, you know the, the traditional story or the the story you hear. I think the the cliche is you write a book, you get published, and stardom follows, and that's mm-hmm. what the romantic idea. And of course, that's virtually never true. Uh, and and what most authors will tell you is, I wrote ten books before I got published, or I wrote, you know, and it's yeah, the Malcolm Gladwell kind of you got to put in how many. And Brandon Sanderson wrote like eight. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear you say that you know your first book got published, but then subsequently it didn't. So mm-hmm. what was that? You know, that's a, a different trajectory. Like how yeah. that that sense of that getting published first, that success, and then the failure. Like, yeah. how did you deal with that? How, how did that affect you? Um, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like when I think about my writing career, I feel like it really began with girls, but actually, well, as in like it kind of got off the ground, but it began a long time before because this was, I think uh, Elites was 2012, I think it was, or I wrote it in sort of 2011, yeah, when I just graduated university. So to me, that's how long I've been writing for and that's kind of that's my like my 10 manuscripts that I wrote before like that it even though I was published traditionally before girls I feel like that's kind of the time where I was learning how to be a published writer and um yeah it's it's an odd because like I said I I just I I sort of thought that once you got there that was it but immediately your obviously your goals shift because okay you've you've had the book published but then you start to kind of realize that how difficult the industry is and how hard it is to kind of make a, a long-term career out of it and I think in many many ways like I wish those books hadn't been published because they w- actually I really like memory keepers mm-hmm. but I f- especially with the least I, I really feel like they weren't you know they weren't good enough I think in many ways or not just good enough but there there were better things coming and I Obviously, I've 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 broken up with that agent now, and I don't I'm not published anymore by Hockey. So I also had issues, obviously, from that end, and I think that really was a learning curve of how how important an agent is to your career, how important a publisher that's going to believe in you, that's going to put their all into you, that if they're going to say they're going to do something, they're going to do something, and it's those relationships that are so important to mm. building your career, and that's what I learned. Um, yeah, absolutely. That time. Yeah, and without wanting to dunk on, you know, past <laughs> relationships, can you talk a bit about the 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 difference between because, uh, you know, I've I've got a publishing background. I've worked with Random House, and and I've also worked with a lot of small publishers, and so I've got a bit of a sense of what that relationship might have been. That that yeah. you know, there are a lot of smaller publishers who do pick up first time manuscripts, and they perhaps shouldn't so can you can you sort of talk to the difference between and maybe for for authors who are trying to get out there and trying to get published like yeah, yeah. what what are the signs like what because i think at the beginning it's you just kind of you're jumping on anything right if there's someone comes to you yeah. and they're like hey your book is great you're like oh my, okay thank you and like if they offer you something you're like oh yes yes i want it and then i think that was that was kind of how that was for me so with my agent i had three agent offers um for elites and a couple of them uh, had kind of different ideas of how to edit. And even one of them was like, I want to represent you, but not this book. I don't feel like it. this is the book. But obviously you're young and, you know, and then another agent's coming and there's, and there's like, this is, this is the right time for it. You know, we're look at why it's looking for more dystopia, which it was not. Because <laughs> um, if you think by the time the book was published, it was like two years later and mm. it was so saturated. And then it was the same with the offer from the publisher. It had just gone on submission and we had an offer in two days um, from this small publisher. And looking at it now, I think my agent was just keen to kind of get the deal and, and go. Pocket the money. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's not 
that's you really need to think about the is the team what we need it to be and I'm not dunking on them at all because I I think hockey were great and they had a great vision but there's a reason why they're kind of like they've expanded now and they've they don't just do YA and they or children's and they you know and I had a, a nice editor who was lovely but really she didn't edit me and you know, now I I've, I look at Elites and I'm, I can see all of the ways it needs to be edited. I mean, there's so many coincidences in the story, you know, mm. like so many things that really could have, because it is almost a first draft. And, um, yeah, so I think it's important to not get too excited about every offer of something because sometimes people just, it's more important, I think, in publishing to have someone who's going to be level-headed and really their weight behind what they're saying and it's it's hard to distinguish between that right because obviously when yeah especially if you haven't seen it before if you exactly come in, yep. yeah um but now it, i've been however many years in the industry yep. and i kind of have a better understanding reputations of different editors reputations of agents was super important when i went out querying the second time so you know i don't regret it like i said mm. i just kind of feel like they didn't need to be published, those books. But at the same time, one of my writer friends, Maura Milan, who's who's published now, she's lovely. And she messaged me to say, like, you know, the elites actually really inspired me to write because like, it was an Asian girl on the cover and it was a diverse story. And I'd never seen that in Y and I didn't see that mm. in, like, Y dystopia. And so that really inspired me. And so uh, who am I to say now, like, the, the, those books shouldn't be published. Absolutely, but yeah. I think we all feel like that about our past work. But I... I definitely have, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's a good life lesson, though, too, to talk about not rushing into things because, success, you know, the success, the first thing that's open to you is probably not going to be the best thing for you. Yeah. And I feel like that, it sounds like, if nothing else, you learned a ton through for sure. and the experiences. And you know what? Like, I'm also very prepared that something like that can happen again. I mean, mm. there are no guarantees. Do you think that having those books published helped you get the deal for girls? No. Actually, it was it was interesting because agents were agents when I queried the second time were concerned because they had done so badly but that actually if you if you've been published traditionally and then you're trying to like get published again but your book hasn't hasn't done well it can be super hard luckily for me it was not a big advance and they were a very small publisher and most publishers were like oh it's just okay it's you know we know what was going on behind the scenes with them so that's not on you so it's a small world and people talk yeah so I think I think it definitely it made me more nervous going yep. out again, and it I think it could have hindered my um, my chances if it had been a different publisher. Yeah. So why did you go out again? <sighs> oh God, who knows? Why why do we do do things to her? So I don't know. I um I just have stories and I write them and. I was wondering this like the other day. Someone asked me like, "Why?" So you're a writer, but like, why do you want to be published? And they're like, "Oh, that must be an ego thing, like, right? Like, you must think your work's amazing, and you." And that's so not true. Like, I'm really, I'm really kind of nervous about my work all the time, and I'm very self-critical. And I, but I don't know. I think there's such a power behind stories, and I think there's a power of feeling like your voice is being heard. And what was nice was that with girls. Um, so after my first two books came out, didn't do very well. I wrote another book, didn't get a publisher, and then broke up with my agent. Oh, and I, sorry, I'd written Girls actually before we'd broken up, but she didn't like it. But something in me just kind of, f- I could feel it this time because I think I'd had that perspective. I could feel that this was something that was new or had a fresh you know, perspective for the market. And it was an important story to tell. But it was great because I'd had so much of that failure 
as it were, behind me, when I came to write Girls, I just wrote the book I really wanted to write. And I wrote without being scared. And I wrote this very kind of a ballsy thing, if you think about what it is. I mean, for teens, and it talks about, you know, rape culture and sexual abuse and, and homophobia. And I mean, there's so much in it. But I had, because I had kind of those struggles behind me, it was like, well, why not? Why not try? Because you don't know what you can. You can write something easily, and then it you know gets published, but then nothing ever happens of it. So yeah, I think uh, I just I could feel there was something. At least it was worth trying. I think that is always my my opinion on things. Like why not try? Like it's so much better to have tried and not it not have gone your way. Like I don't think that's a failure. I think any time you try, it's not a failure because you you're making something. You know, like you're you're you're, you're chasing after your dreams you're yeah. not just sitting there and waiting for things to come to you there's an intrinsic value of, yeah. of following the process through and, and creating exactly. and doing something whether yeah. or not the the end goal is that you get from it you yeah. you, you might change it you know you never know where it's going to end up but yeah. yeah yeah there's a big gap in there that we'll get into after the break i think as well a career gap but one of the the big life things that happened for you uh that i'm curious about are well i know a fair amount about but you one you moved to paris mm-hmm which I'm curious how that affected everything because your entire environment changed and you're in a different language, you're immersed in something else. And then as well, you have uh, you have a chronic illness that has very, I mean, recently very seriously impacted your ability to write uh, and has interfered a lot with, the, I know, your publishing schedule as well. How do the, I, I imagine that's actually a greater, has a greater impact than having moved to France, but I, I'm curious to know how that's, really both affected what you're writing about but how you managed to get it did you just compare living in france to a chronic illness yes (laughs) it feels like it sometimes (laughs) depends on how deep into the bureaucracy you're getting um so i think i mean you're a writer too so you it it's such a personal i mean it just it's such an and it takes so much energy from you to write like it's incredible like it's bizarre how much and because sometimes you just work for sort of two hours and then you just feel absolutely drained Mm -hmm. because it's coming from such a well I think that the best writing comes from such a raw and honest place inside of you and you're really just kind of digging into your soul and trying to you know reveal something that's that's authentic and true and so I'm sure that it's affected me I think moving to Paris in a way strengthened my not my writing necessarily, but my ability to write anywhere with anything that's going on. Um, because before I moved, I was very much like had to be in a, in a house and it was quiet and I was at home and no one was speaking to me and there was no music. And it was, you know, almost the same time every day that I would sit down to write. And I had a routine and I and I loved my routine back in England. And then I moved to Paris and everything was everything was flipped over I had no routine I was scared to go out because I couldn't speak the language and when I tried to people were (laughs) mean to me (laughs) and um I yeah and I was nervous and I didn't have that same support system because I didn't have my friends here yet thank you Jay Mm -hmm. and um but in a way it was it was almost good because it made me like I it just forced me to get used to writing anywhere at any time I was at that time traveling a lot as well for um for girls one which is coming out and I was on deadline for girls two and uh girls two was written all over the place I mean like sometimes with you in a coffee shop in NOLA in airports on airplanes um when I had like 10 minutes between 
things and in very noisy coffee shops in Paris and they were playing like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and stuff and I was writing this super emotional scene where characters are dying. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think actually in a way getting out of your environment I think can really help just kind of wake you up a bit and force you to confront you know, like kind of yeah. confront things without that support system behind you, which is scary, but at the same time, you realize you can do it. And that's amazing. Like now I can write anywhere. I could write sitting in the street and it would, it wouldn't, you know, it would still be hard in the usual ways, but I know I could do it. And that's something I've learned. And maybe a bit, it's quite similar maybe with a chronic, with chronic illness is that you, you just, you really do learn how much you're capable of, even though you are going through so much and every day, you're waking up and you're in pain. I mean, I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. I've never known what it was like to not be in pain, to not be sick, to not like, because I had my condition EDS is um, is genetic. And so I've had loads of issues since I was young. And when I was a kid, I genuinely thought that everyone was in pain all the time. And I, for example, I get vertigo whenever I close my eyes, the world just starts spinning. And I genuinely thought that that was something that happened to everyone as well until I remember I was talking about it with my friends. They'd be like, oh, you know when this happens? And they were like, what? When what happens? <laughs> I was like, you know, when this? And like, what, when you're sick? And I'm like, no, 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 like just... Just like right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's, yeah, all these sorts of odd things that you just don't, yeah, I don't think about. That well, I was also going to say that there's been a direct impact of it recently. Mm. I mean, you've had some severe because when we were traveling, you were you were doing okay and and you were able to keep up the pace. But did your publishing the pressure of that, the work you were doing, and the travel did that actually? Do you feel like that's aggravated your yeah your condition for sure? For sure. And I because you've really pulled back. Yeah, I did. I so last year I was in the U.S. I can't remember how many times, but yeah, I was I was traveling and then I did the tour, which was really brutal like it was one of it was one of the hardest things I've ever done it was also incredible because when you I mean firstly how lucky how fortunate to be given a tour so uh, obviously I didn't want to turn it down um but at the same time it was so hard because one I'm terrified of flying like I still fly but I just like my body just does not like it and I get you know so it's 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 emotionally exhausting every time um, and then also I had flu at the time just before I left, like real, real proper flu. Like I was really ill. And then um, I had jet lag and I wasn't sleeping. I was getting either no sleep or an hour or something a night. And every day when you're touring, you, you fly again and you go to a new place and you have to extrovert, you know, when you arrive and be great in front of people and obviously be there for your readers who are making an effort to come and see you. And it was incredible to meet people um and to meet my readers and I have some of the best readers I think in the world but yes it was absolutely exhausting and the problem with me is that and I think with many people with a chronic illness is that you've you've had it for so long that you've learned how to manage and how to deal and how to get through life with it but it sometimes means that you push and you push and you push and I'm just like I can do it and I get through it and I get through it and then at some point my body is like oh no like I you have pushed me too much and then you're set back a really long time and I feel like this year has just been a year of of illness like I've felt really bad all the time very low on energy and it's it's been such a struggle to to write because of that and I also realized another reason why the writing was hard which has nothing to do with really the chronic illness but maybe the the rigors of publishing life is that I wasn't reading as much as mm. I used to and and because writing was not my safe place anymore it was not you know a place where I could go and just write for me I was now writing on a schedule and I had 
expectations of readers to think about, my publishers. And yeah, I wasn't reading enough and I wasn't filling my creative well. So I think that drained me a lot as well. And what I've started doing recently, which has helped me so much, is have getting back into a routine of reading and you know, seeing it as time well spent rather than, oh, I should not be reading books, I should be writing them. No, you need to do both. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to name drop here, but I was talking to Bill Bryson oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> one time and, and he mentioned that he never reads for pleasure. Uh, he feels guilty because mm. he's always researching. So for him, you know, he had that same experience, you know, when it becomes your profession, um, if he, was ever, he, he doesn't read fiction because he just, he's got so much research to do. And yeah, and he, he was saying a similar sort of thing. It, it yeah. can be yeah, really draining on him. Um, Anyway, sorry, name drop over. Name dropping. We're going to... Bill. Yeah, can I just ask one more question, actually, because you mentioned there your readers and the expectations of those readers. And and also you talked about how, you know, the, the amount of issues that you, you've raised in this book, the amount of... Uh, obviously coming from a personal place, but mm. but a, a huge gap, uh, many gaps. You filled a lot of gaps in that young adult space uh, in terms of, obviously, you know, writing for, you know, Asian, uh, Asian girls, but also dealing with rape culture and, and various things there. So how is the, your... I'm very interested in your relationship with your readers. You know, how do you view that relationship, and 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 what surprised you about it, and and how's that developed? Yeah. Um. Oh God. I I just my readers are amazing, and I think I didn't realize how healing writing girls would be for me. It was actually the writing itself was not so healing. I just felt it was something I needed to write, and I had this these anger and these emotions inside me, and it, you know, it came from a very raw place. And then when the book came out. And it was connecting with readers who were like me, who were, whether they were, um, yeah, Asian girls who hadn't felt represented in their favorite genre in fantasy, whether it was um, queer girls who hadn't felt represented. And it was, I have lots of messages as well from girls who've been through sexual abuse, um, men as well, and, and, and adults, you know, it's, it's of all ages. And I, that is such an incredible thing I don't even know how to you know talk about it like it's just so powerful and it's so intimate in a way and it really surprised me I didn't I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't realize how much I would receive in return get so many messages from people who feel grateful for my books but I just want to and now is a nice time I can take a moment to say like I feel so grateful to them because that's that's just incredible and it I think that's what I, I wrote girls because I didn't want girls who'd been through things like that to feel alone the way I'd now I don't feel alone I feel connected to my readers so even though it can be overwhelming and it's it's very difficult I'm not someone who's good with boundaries and so it's quite difficult to know how much to give how much to talk and sometimes I can't reply to all the messages I get and sometimes I have lots of questions and that's so tough but at the same time just you know that that level of connection is just incredible that's yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. The the way you use the like the connection and and the fact that you know when you, when you say that it, it reveals that there's there's so many people out there who feel isolated and all they need is yeah. is you know a, a point of connection and yeah. and suddenly um, how how important that can be to people's lives yeah. um, and how important books are and stories are yeah. in that yeah, yeah. cool and, um, yeah I treasure yeah. all those messages and those letters and I keep them all and that's wonderful. Today's episode is brought to you by none other than our lovely, supportive patrons, people that have 
changed my life personally and have made things like this podcast possible in the first place. If you want to support this podcast along with the other projects that we're on to, including long-term things like The Publishing House and hanging out and feeding our guests delicious cookies and, uh, and coffee as we go, please consider joining us as a member of our Patreon over at patreon.com slash jswanson. That's what it currently is at least. And uh, if you want to join us for any level over there, every amount helps. We really appreciate it. And uh, that's my whole spiel there. And we're back with Natasha Nyan talking about her, her publishing experience. And I think we're, we're going to sort of pivot a little bit here to we're going to pick your brain and, and really see what you can do to help us in our publishing uh, endeavours. Um, those of you who heard our first episode, and if you haven't, I suggest you go back and, and listen because this whole series, really the idea here is um, to create a series of us taking you through the process of us creating a, a publishing house. So it, it's good to listen to all of the episodes in, in order. And if you have listened to that episode, you'll know that one of the main goals for the podcast is to chronicle this journey uh, in building a publishing house and film studio around the story universe that Jay's been writing in for over a decade. The name of the podcast, uh, Building the Oracle, is taken directly from that universe, uh, where the overarching title of the series is The Oracle of the Dread Gods. Uh, the thing is, Jay can't do it all on his own. Uh, there's a lot he can do. But, and there's a lot he has done up until now on his own. But considering the sheer scale of his, of his ambitions and, uh, and the universe that he's creating, he's going to need a lot of help along the way. One of the arenas we've decided to tackle on our own for a variety of reasons is the, is the publishing itself. So you've gone the, the traditional route, Natasha, but, but we're going to try and create our own publishing house around it. Personally, I, I've worked in publishing um, for, as I mentioned before, Random House. Uh, and I've also worked with a lot of independent publishers as a, as a consultant, but also as a book distributor and um, all sorts of ways. And uh, my most recent project was was building a publishing house mm-hmm. from the ground up in the sci-fi space. There's a, there's a lot to be gained from doing it our own way, but there's also a lot of risks involved in that because it's, it's a much bigger project. There's, um, there's a reason that authors go to traditional publishers to manage all this for them. So... I guess, yeah, you talked a little bit about the, the, the two publishing experiences you've had, but maybe we can delve into a little bit about your current publisher and your experience with them. I think it's a great ex- exercise for us to, to hear what a, what a good publishing experience is from the author's point of view. So as we, as we look to build our publishing house around Jay's universe, mm-hmm. as an author, what has made this a good publishing experience for you? What do you look for in a good publisher? I think the first is your trust and comfort with the team, which I think is a great thing about what you guys are doing because you're you you are that team and you're building it you know you you have control over who you're bringing in and I think that's very important is to have um a team that all works together and that trusts each other and that so when you're bringing in someone new like me as an author I can feel that um sort of sense of community I can I can see how everyone is really rooting for the, these books that they bring in to succeed. And it makes a huge amount of difference. And being approachable, you know, especially whoever you're working with, but when you when you email, you know, I email my publishers and they reply. And I mean, <laughs> it seems like a... <laughs> seems like it, but yes. It seems like a given, yeah. yeah. But no, uh, this was not always the case. And I think being transparent as well is really important. So I think that's another reason why I do feel like I have this trust with my publisher. Because it's an educational experience for authors who come in. Yeah. There's a lot of education about the publishing experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So being transparent about sales, about marketing plans. Um, I don't feel like I need to be 
super, super involved all the time. I know I have author friends who like to kind of know every single step of the process and where has my book gone to now and I kind of just like to be left alone to to do the writing and do a bit of promo but I do like that I get updates from my publishers um because I'm also published in the UK by um Hodder um and they have also been amazing they update me you know on things and yeah so I think it's that level of that level of trust and transparency okay which hopefully Jay and I have <laughs> will have <laughs> And and in terms of the professionalism, in terms of the, the, the service that they provide, obviously, you you know, you talked about your first book, not getting the editing it deserved, but what else, beyond the editing and, and creating a, a good product, what else have you seen from your, you know, the, the girl series yeah. that, that's really, like, that that you've realised has really elevated? I mean, yeah. it's on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, this is this is a hugely successful series now. And, yeah, it's thanks and to them. And it's, it's marketing, um, which I'm sure you would have more to... I've, I've never marketed a New York Times bestseller book. I, I've, I've never been behind the marketing of a New York Times bestselling book. Um, you know, I've, yes, I've been involved in, in marketing and sales and, mm-hmm. and I know the process, but, um, you know, that's, that's incredible to be involved in that. I mean, that's, that's a... Uh, but that doesn't mean books. that you marketed less well, right? It's just that I think there's a particular magical alchemy that kind of happens and you just kind of... You know, like you put the things in and then there's a sure, bit of luck that comes in. Or you get some wealthy yes. friends to buy 50,000 copies <laughs> of the book. <laughs> Which is not what I did, Jane. Yeah, bulk buying, no. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there definitely is, a chance comes into it. But mm-hmm. but also when, you know, when you build a business, mm-hmm. you've got to maximise that, the chance that, that that good luck hits. Yeah. And so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a process and a lot of work that yeah. the publishers put in to make sure that that book, uh, you know, gets in the right channels and, and these things happen. Yeah. I think what I can tell with Jimmy, um, that's, sorry, that's my, the imprint is Jimmy Patterson at Hachette. And I think what I could see with them was that they don't, they don't take on too much. So I have, I, I can see with other publishers, they'll buy many books and sometimes books that are pretty similar. And like, in a way it's kind of like, cause they know how to market that, right? They know how to package that. It's almost like a, not a, really a copy and paste, but it can be, you know, almost. And um, whereas with Jimmy, they they they've kept small, um, and they've chosen pretty different books. So um, I think just that they're they're careful about what projects they bring on, basically. And so when they do bring on a project, number one, you have that team, you have that trust, and that sort of powerhouse behind the book. But then number two, you have more resources to give to the thing to that book. Yeah, um, and I think that's something that I've really appreciated, and I think that's what helped us get onto the New York Times list. Like, I'm not sure if I'd had another publisher, even if I don't know, like whether I would have had that same outcome. There's probably a little bit to unpack there about about just how Jimmy fits into the, mm-hmm. the broader Hachette uh, group. Just for for people who are outside the industry, Hachette's actually a French yes. publishing house, but um, Hachette's one of the biggest publishing houses in the world, and well, so the big five, don't they? Yeah, yeah, one of the big five, and Hodder is actually. You know, you, you said you're published in, in the UK by Hodder. They're also under the Hachette family. And so what they've effectively done is you, you get the best of both worlds because they've they've provided a small team in Jimmy and, they, you know, they, they, it's called an imprint. And they say, right, this imprint's going to focus on the young adult or the, this sort of niche. And so you get that small publisher feeling, but within this powerhouse yeah. of, of one of the yeah. biggest publishers in the world. Yeah, so, that's it. Yeah. I've and always loved working in small teams. Like when I look at the jobs I've had and like I've always gravitated towards that. And so, yes, I get the benefit of having that small team, but having a big powerhouse and having James Patterson behind it as well. Because sometimes James comes in and he's like, I'm going to put some money towards this. Yes. 
and that's pretty helpful having the uh, someone like him. For those there. of you at home that can't see what she just did, James has a very nice fluid wrist <laughs> when he gives money. I mean, James Patterson's a really interesting case study in his own right. I mean, obviously, he's an author who was traditionally published and became a, one of the the biggest selling authors in the world. The biggest. The biggest, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I should know this because he then has created his own publishing house, which back in the day when I was at Random House, Random House in Australia was actually the distributor for for his books and it was a big thing when we won that contract because his books alone were worth the size of a small publishing house. And then, so he he alone has built this empire, which is, is really what, you know, Jay... Let's be honest. That's where you you want to go. You want yeah. you want to provide you know your books. You want to and you've got enough books in you, and you've got enough uh, of a universe and, and enough stories in there to actually build a publishing house worth of books. And that's why mm. that's why when we look at this, it's like well, if we're serious about going down this path and actually publishing a universe, when you look down, you know, ten, fifteen years down the track, that's that's where this should end up if it's successful. So, um, looking at at that that model um so it's interesting to, to, to talk to you um yeah. as someone who's been published by by james patterson and, and jimmy patterson i assume is the young adult uh, the, yeah the children's yeah. young adult and then you yep. have james patterson which is the yeah. adult. yeah yeah just gotta keep the nicknames for the kids <laughs> i was gonna but that's another question as far as because where we started with this too and talking well richard was saying that i i can't do everything on my own obviously and part of what we're trying to do at this stage with the the podcast and with uh, the vlog and with a number of different elements, just trying to get something that's up and running and self-sustaining and working so that if I'm not necessarily working in elements of the business as much as I'm working on the business slash providing the structures that we're creating with content. But there's also, I think, a limit to how much content I can produce, obviously within time and so forth. And so looking to the future, when you look at like, I don't know if this would interest you at all um, across the board, but like, let's say somebody like Star Wars came to you and asked you to write a Star Wars book. So it's I happened guess, to my friends, right? And so, like, <laughs> if Disney, if Di- if Disney came to you, mm-hmm. and uh, and if, I, if Jay Swanson came to you, <laughs> my budget is too lean. Um, but but someday that's that's a consideration. So taking me out of that context though for now, because I'm I'm paltry and small. What if somebody like Disney came to you and said, "We want you to write a Star Wars book." Would that be something that would interest you? Is there a universe like that that you would like to play in? And what are the elements of that that would get you particularly excited to do it? Like, what are the most important elements to that equation? I mean, this is, I can't give details, but it has happened already. But the reason I haven't been able to participate is just because of, of I'm still on my contract with the trilogy. And I'm not, I'm not one of those authors that can churn out five books a year. Um, so I... I guess, I mean, like timing is a big thing, but what would be universes that I would be interested in? Oh my God. Oh, I don't know. I feel like this is the moment where I should dream big and I'm... Yeah, dream big. Put it out there. They're, all, they're all listening. The entire publishing world is listening <laughs> to this podcast. It's... Um, J.R.R. Martin is a regular yep. <laughs> subscriber. <laughs> um, it could be really fun, for example, for me. It would be great to bring um, mangas and animes and write, like novelize those for western audiences or mm. you know more yeah, western audience. i think that's really cool because i i think for me i the re- one of the reasons i uh, just along with the con- the time and stuff that i haven't done one of these projects it's because i really put so much heart into every one of my books like there's so much of me and what i think and i really just i don't know how to explain it but they're they're not stories that are kind of 
drawn lightly. So I think I, I need to feel a soul, a heart soul connection with a project in order to go through that because writing is such a, I mean, it's so hard for me and I'm, and I'm so sick. So it's not, you know, like undertaking that project is not something I do lightly. And I really, I have a lot of books I want to tell as well and lots of stories I want to, to write. So I think I would have to feel that kind of, you know, connection. And so something like it, if it was something I really loved, like, the, you know, these Natasha Nyan, uh, the Jedi Knight or <laughs> Sith Lord or I'm not a Star Wars person. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was just an example I brought up. <laughs> a million people now coming to <laughs> Well, that's the but that's part of the curiosity, right? In in knowing that. The other side of things mm -hmm. that we were gonna talk to you about, um, and if you have any other thoughts that come up on those lines, like what would really pull you in. I think that's for me, that's the same. It's similar. I don't think that obviously, if somebody walks up and offers you a large chunk of cash, that's going to be potentially difficult to walk away from. But for me, it's similar. The same thing. I, I wouldn't be interested unless it was something that I was like viscerally attached yes. to and involved in and and imagining myself in already. And because I want to do what we're doing, like I, I personally wouldn't be attracted to that anyways, just because I want to write the books in my universe to begin with. But I do see the potential of like trying to divide that labor where it comes down to, okay, here are the series that I'm going to write. Here are the trilogies or the one-offs that I'm definitely going to write because I know exactly what I want to do with them. Mm -hmm. And then here are other elements to this universe that we're creating side stories or important stories as well that maybe I don't really feel as much, but are important. And I would like to bring someone in to write that. And so part of what we want to do with the next couple of years in doing some behind the scenes world building, but not only in that traditional sense of like, what was the currency at this point, but also trying to think in terms of like, what is the overarching story? What's the structure? Mm -hmm. Where are we going? What are the, the necessary plot points to get to the end so we can write towards this end? Figuring that out, what are the bones? And then being able to hand off, this sounds really weird now, but hand off certain bones to other people to flesh out and, yeah, yeah. Um, and giving them some freedom and saying, hey, these four things have to be accomplished in this mm -hmm. book. Otherwise... Uh, I would really like you to bring everything you have to bear to it. But I think that's so fun as well because you'll get, you there'll be so many things that you didn't expect or couldn't have come up with yourself yeah. that they'll bring to the table, to the story. And then that could influence, you know, aspects of the story you're doing at that time. Or I, I think that's really cool, collaborative. You're saying Jay probably wouldn't write as good an Asian <laughs> lesbian <laughs> character. You don't know what I do in my <laughs> spare time. <laughs> No, but that's, yeah, that, but you're totally right. And I think that's actually also, a, it's tempting and dangerous because you, it's really exciting and really scary because think of all the really, really fun and exciting things that could spin out of those kinds of relationships. So that's what's also really important for us to, to do. Uh, that's why I'm talking about when I, when Richard and I are talking about this, we're talking about laying out the bones because we need to know how to get from the feet to the head. And mm -hmm. that's important. But there are certain elements within that that can offshoot or that can fill that out that you're right, could totally influence that and so trying to leave things open enough in that process. And that's part of that juggling. It's a chicken and egg situation mm -hmm. of trying to create something much bigger than we can do on our own while not limiting the creativity that comes into that t too much. Mm -hmm. So trying to set the appropriate limits and trying to basically trying to say, hey, we're going to be writing a song or a symphony in this key and at this tempo. Okay, now fill it in and, and trying to figure out how exactly that works. Yeah. The other side of what we wanted to talk with you about today, though, too, uh, was your experience in your in lifestyle blogging and mm. your Instagram modeling and just being generally beautiful, professionally beautiful, <laughs> professionally <laughs> talented as well. You're not just you're not just a, an amazing mind. You're also a pretty face. So 
how does like your experience in audience development and in and pulling all these people into one side of your world was there a translation you were able to make into the fantasy side because i imagine that girl in the lens Mm -hmm. if you haven't looked her up on instagram yet go follow her on instagram she is as beautiful as i'm saying she is uh and then obviously you have natasha nyan over here is there a connection point there between those two audiences yeah so for me i i very deliberately didn't want to connect them and i didn't i haven't really used the sort of audience that i built with girl uh guide in the lens to to sort of i don't know to to help with with book sales or anything like that i think it was i don't know blogging was a hard one for me because i i was a um i guess a professional blogger for at least two years yeah I think I guess I was a, a professional blogger you could call it and I don't know that was it was about two years that I was doing that and the blog we ran for about sort of five years and for me it was it was enough I mean I I I did enjoy it again I don't regret it I learned so much and it I can't I can't say that I wouldn't I would be here without it like I don't know that because it definitely was a a huge influence on my life but it was not something that I felt I guess connected to in that hot soul way after a while and after after it commercialized it was very much um like I enjoyed it it was a way to make money to make good money and to to meet people and to do things but I was talking about lifestyle stuff and at a time in my life where that was not what was so important to me I mean, I didn't talk really much about my health. I didn't talk about, you know, the relationship troubles I was having. I went through a huge breakup and my boyfriend was my photographer and I didn't talk about that. And I guess I could have, but that was not the platform that I'd created. And so I feel like almost, you know, that my writing, not persona as it were, but like the writing side of things, Natasha and Yang, I can be more authentic. I can talk about that stuff and that, that helps with not that I ever use it to you know to help but I I like to put it out there just in case any of my readers I don't know are going through a bad health day as well and they think oh okay you know I I can be a writer and I can have these health problems and so I don't know I just I guess it's hard to talk about I don't want to trash my (laughs) the the job I did for a long time but it it lacked a level of authenticity after a while I mean that's what what I find really interesting about that is is the fact that you you cut that and mm-hmm. it, you know, in retrospect, you go, of course you did. You know, like look at your success now, and and your, you know, the, the the fulfillment that comes from that. But at that time, when that decision was made to to sever that and to and to yeah, everything you built there basically walk away from it. And it, I'm not sure if it was you know how long that took or whether it was a an instant decision or something that happened over yeah. several months. But take us to that point, like that that decision to say no, I'm I'm going to go and be an author, and that's going to be my main thing, and I'm going to this whole audience I built this this platform I built I'm going to walk away from it yeah I guess in in a way it was it was not such a clean break because I still operate under those handles and that was something that um I guess was a more of a businessy decision rather than set up a whole new you know Twitter or Instagram I could just keep that but kind of slightly change the content but if you I mean if you look at my Instagram I'm barely on there I mean I've posted like maybe six things in the whole year so yeah I did, yeah, I don't, I don't really want so to. So just it trickled away, really. The, just, the, it, yeah. This the the book overtook it. Yeah, and um, I I guess I just also kind of woke up and I realized what was important, and I didn't want to make that decision just because oh it will get me a few more book sales. I wanted to enjoy using 
my social media and I'm sure a lot of people who used to follow me don't anymore because they're like oh books like what's she oh she's like ranting about politics like what's going on <laughs> I just wanted to see some nice shoes that I could buy um but it's yeah. a big it's a big change it is a big change but yeah. it's I but I respect that too but you're you're one of a few people that I have met who built a social media following that was really large or that professionalized it like mm-hmm. you did and then walked away from that because it was soul-sucking or yeah, it was wasn't just not good for me yeah. anymore and that's great because a lot of people would just stay in that and burn themselves out or oh, for sure you and know. I think as well people always like people were asking me how can you walk away from that like you have million followers in total like you have so many view, like how can you build that for five years how can you just walk away from it and I'm like well because I I'm ready to like I yeah it's not serving me anymore like I did it doesn't just because you're choosing to walk away from something doesn't devalue that thing like that still gave me so many incredible opportunities so many incredible friends that's why I'm that's how I met Fab that's why I'm in Paris now like I you're not trashing that you're just saying that it's not it's no longer for me and I think that's that's a rule that you can apply to everything in life relationships or whatever just because it ends and just because you choose to move on doesn't devalue it I think it scares people though too I think that's where that comes from to some degree like there's an envy that you built something that a lot of people would want and then there's a fear of like yeah but you built this thing Mm -hmm. and that could do so much for you you know like there's that part of it too I wonder if the people yeah if they're empathizing to that yeah but you're walking away from a million followers but what is it doing for me because I would in order to use that leverage that following let's say I would have to keep it up I would have to and like there is a lot of work that goes into blogging I think people think it's a sort of or some people can think it's a really easy little thing but no like it's a lot of time and effort I mean it's like most of your life I mean I never had a day off so you wouldn't know anything about that yeah 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 I didn't know what I don't know what weekends are like now I'm rediscovering and like I feel so much better so yes I'm walking away from I guess something that could have helped push girls a bit more but at the same time, I that, I mean, that's the reason why I, I wanted to be traditionally published was because I knew that I didn't have the energy and the time or I didn't want to devote my energy and time in order to doing all the promotional kind of stuff. And I just really just wanted to focus on the writing. And um, I think, yeah, I think if you know in your heart and soul it's not good for you, walk away. Yeah. and that's that, so good, though. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I, it's a fairly courageous decision, it's, but probably one that I, I expect – having gone through, you know, having the chronic illness and, and understanding your body and, and what you need and where your limits are as well. It's, it's uh, part of it's the rational and saying, I, I have this much energy to put into things and, yeah. uh, and, and making that decision to say, no, I, I need to focus that way. Yeah. But I, I think, I think it has to be acknowledged that it is a, it's a pretty courageous decision. And I don't think it's one, I think there are a lot of stories out there. My wife listens to a lot of, oh, sorry, follows a lot of uh, uh, mums on Instagram. And it's saying we talked about connection points before and, and how finding uh, a community online uh, or, you know, through books or through wherever. When, when she became a mother, finding other mothers on Instagram was a completely unexpected but extremely rewarding thing for her because we're both from Australia. We've come to Paris. We've had our children mm-hmm. in Paris. And um, we're away from our families. And, and so for her finding these other women who were very open and honest I think changed her experience of motherhood and realized yeah, she she talked a lot about having this new set found sense of wonder for her own body and oh. for women's bodies and and for motherhood and that's saying that she wouldn't have got 
without without that connection to other mothers on Instagram. Yeah. But since then, having followed these, she's also witnessed the toxic effect of that of you know Insta mamas and that that culture mm. online. And um, there's some pretty high profile things happening in some of those communities at the moment, where the the erosion of you know the, the constant chase for new followers for sponsorship and things like that has has certainly there's it's a big debate right now yeah, i think yeah, is, is, is exactly where the balance is yeah because it becomes a business when it's at that level and so you have to you run it making business decisions and i i really hated that like there was i mean i turned down lots of money for lots of projects just because i thought this is so not i mean i'm not going to expose my audience to this but then it doesn't. Then you're kind of holding yourself back, and it's just an odd. Thing. I just realized at some point this is just not for me anymore. It's um, yeah. It's understandable. That's something that I've, I've attempted to avoid from the beginning. Was mm-hmm. I didn't, and I think the traditional way of getting into social media, whether that was through blogging, now Instagram, YouTube, whatever it is, is that people go and they're looking to build the biggest audience they can because then with that many eyeballs they can get sponsors. And a lot of the sponsorship then comes with its own baggage. And a lot of the opportunities come with potential like weird or undesirable elements to it. And they start to own you. And if they're paying for the content, then they want you to do X, Y, and Z and to jump through certain hoops. And all of a sudden you've created this thing that now owns you more than you own it. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. So I feel, and I've seen that through, I mean, I've, I've been aware of that for a long time. And so when I started vlogging like every day, my goal was to do the exact opposite and to say, I want to find a group of people that just like me for who I am and are willing to follow me and build that core audience. And that's where like Patreon became such a really big help was that that was an avenue for them to be a part of it. And in a way that, that guaranteed my freedom uh, so that now that I do have sponsorship opportunities coming my way, I don't, there's no pressure to reject that because I'm stable and I want to maintain authenticity. And by the time this comes out, we were talking about this earlier, like I, I'm getting to be a part of an Air France campaign that mm-hmm. I'm just excited to be a part of for a number of reasons. And I think it aligns with what I'm doing. And the cool thing is they're not even asking to, basically like we would like you to share this on your social accounts. Mm-hmm. They're not even, and the cool thing is that I, I could wait to the point that a big name that I like, that I think is really exciting to work with, with an amazing team that's treated me so well and I've had such a great time like there's been no starvation for me to like grab at other things that might have kind of ruined me along the yeah. way that now I got, I get to say yes to something that came to me. That's what I want where, you know, with the kind of horrible emails that you get, like I've been able to just kind of flatly turn down or entertain them long enough to realize they weren't for me a, a bunch of other smaller offers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a fortunate thing. So when, and when we've talked a lot about your past career, like that's one of the things that I feel like has been kind of affirming not to say, but uh, you're now that you're already out of it and those lessons are learned but that's kind of affirming for me at least of the path that I've chosen to take is that it's hard because I look at a lot of people that started about the same time I did or that do similar things that blew up and and ha- seem to have all this wild success that I can be envious of sometimes but then I stop and I remind myself that yeah but I I've actually built something that's it may be smaller and slower but I'm really really free and and have a lot of what I really want yeah. going on over you know i don't feel trapped yeah and there's a there's also an incredible amount of pressure that comes with that many people watching you i mean yeah. i that's probably part of the the process of the blog growing and i got to a point where i actually I, I i hated that like i'm very introverted and i didn't like that there was this i could feel you know the 
the million followers like there and I like I had to perform and provide things for them and some people are good at that and enjoy that and then absolutely amazing that's the industry for you but for me I just I really realized like I don't know why am I doing this why am I putting myself through this it's so like whereas I could be building something else for myself that was more good for me no that's well so then it's it yeah and it brings me back to or brings us back to the publishing side of things where I wonder if that you basically dancing in front of a million people where it is just you publishing on your blog there's nobody between you really nobody to help you because you are it Mm -hmm. and then take that to traditional publishing is that part of why you actually maybe you thrive a little bit more in a traditional publishing environment where you have a team and there's some buffer and it's going through a process before it sees the light of day and then I'm detached to and a then you're detached extent. From it. You, you from still have social media and you still interact. Mm. You're very good at with it, uh, interacting with your followers on Twitter and, and elsewhere. But at the same time, you can walk away from that. And it, you're, where with a blog, you have to continually be producing. That continual production process for traditional publishing is something nobody sees. Yeah. You struggle for a year to get it done. You're still working really hard, but then you hand it off. Yeah. And then you can walk away from it. And yep. whether or not you put any more work into it, it doesn't matter because it's done. Yeah, is that do you feel like that's part of why you you prefer that environment? Yeah, definitely. I I like just getting my head down and focusing on the writing. Um even as hard as <laughs> the writing is. Um yeah, I I think and that's something that I've learned from not just blogging but having a chronic illness and everything like just what can I give and what do I do best and then let someone else deal with the rest. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And if for those of you listening at home right now who may have forgotten her book, Girls of Storm and Shadow, is out right now everywhere you can buy books. Please go buy a copy right now. Buy two copies. Give one to a friend. Whatever you're going to do, make sure that you buy as many copies as possible. Hand them out. Even Gustav's going to be reading it <laughs> soon. And uh, congratulations to you, Natasha, and good luck with the, this book and the third book when it comes out. Thank you so much, Jane. Absolutely. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. I love Natasha. Yeah, she's she's awesome. She's, she's one of the most fun people to be around, fun people to talk to, and, and just her life experience is incredible. Her happy food dance. If you haven't seen it on my vlog, she's she's just a delight in general. Richard, like the I guess for what I we've talked about this a little bit, but between uh, on the break, I suppose. But what is it that you took away from this the most? You think out of talking to Natasha? Yeah, I. I mentioned at the start that I found it very interesting, you know, why she made that choice to move towards being an author rather than uh, than doing her fashion blog. But once she made that decision, um, the thing that I took away uh, was really two different experiences she had with publishing. Her original experience with a uh, with her first agent and her first publisher, and you know the fact that she had a team that didn't really support her, and and the quality of the product, her experience, the quality of her experience wasn't uh, wasn't strong. But she she went back and decided, no, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this despite the fact that her first two books didn't succeed the way that she wanted them to. She found a new agent, she found a new publisher and I think that, that looking at her experience with that new publisher and, and how they support her and, and what they do, I think that's, you know, that, that there's some, a lot of good advice to come out of that for us when we build our, our house in terms of how we want to run things and what's important but also the fact that she, uh, she persevered with it you know and and i think the reason she got there was because she throughout all of her story it was about her doing what worked for her um she didn't compromise she had potentially other offers on the table um that she she rejected because or she waited for the right one because she knew what she wanted she knew she was writing for herself 
and she believed in that and she she kept going until she found the right team and that right you know having the right team around her having a other people who believed in her and and weren't just there to flatter her and to you know go through the process i think was yeah. extremely i think noble. i'm i'm really proud of her for how she went about that i think that she made some really difficult decisions along the way but for the right reasons and took big risks that could have ended very poorly and in, and thankfully instead ended very very well for me I, you know talking about that and the team elements for us looking at developing this universe and the, you know, the fictional side of my work and trying to bring other people into it. I think on the creative side, it's one of the things that I haven't really put a lot of thought into because I've always thought of myself as just being the, the producer of that. But as we talked about bringing other artists, musicians, other types of people in, writers are definitely going to be a really important part of that and wanting to create a space in that universe for them to play, to, to create, to work, uh, but also to create a team like you're talking about where they can feel like they're a part of something and they can be invested in you know, captured in that vision, I think is, is the most important thing is obviously we want to be in a place where we can afford to pay people to be a part of it. But knowing that the most important part really is casting other vision and, and making a very, very healthy and, and safe space for people to be a part of something like that is more important. Yeah. And to trust people. Trust is big. Yeah. You know, it sounds like the publishing team that, that she's with now trusts her and, uh, and they've earned her trust. Yeah, exactly. They've absolutely earned her trust, which yep. I think is huge. So this actually ties in really nicely with the necessity of a long-term goal for the podcast. And by the end of this season, what we want to do is have a mission statement aligned. We talked about that two weeks ago with John, the importance of having a mission statement to really clarify and know exactly where we don't want to go and what we want to do, because that helps us to invite people into collaboration with us, invite people onto the team if they know what the story is they're becoming a part of. A mission statement for us needs to be more than just like, be good people, but to actually have a long-term story, long-term goals, and short-term applicable goals as well uh, within it, or at least not necessarily that it defines that, but that, that it is encapsulated within that and guides us as a company, as a team, in a way that we can say, hey, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. And this is how you can help and be a part of that. And uh, that naturally defines what the team elements and the, the long-term goals are together. So we have enrolled ourselves in a, uh, in a course to work on our mission statement and our uh, messaging and all of that to really, really hone in on it and hopefully get much better at it by the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing that we talked about uh, two weeks ago as a bit of an action point, a takeaway, was to look at the goals for the podcast. Um, so we, we've been discussing that and uh, we've come up with a few ways of defining success for the just the first season of this podcast where we, we just want to focus on just one season now and um, we'll take it from there. But a couple of things we looked at were monetization. Where, what do we want to get out of this in terms of monetization? And we really decided that it's not a priority for our first season. In the longer term, yes, uh, we do want this to be a sustainable podcast and so we're going to look at monetization later. And so really just for this first season, we want the podcast to be in a place where in the second season or even the third season that we're in a place that we can go and, and seek that through probably through sponsorship in terms of audience and, and what are our goals for building an audience again in this first season we don't really want to focus too much on the overall subscribers and, and downloads uh, and, and those metrics although of course we want we want listeners and, and we'd love you to subscribe and download if you if you love the show but for this first season really what we want to do is is just pr um, create a podcast where the people who are listening love it and and that they you know the feedback we're getting is good we're getting good engagement we want to, we want to build a, a strong podcast for the people who do listen to it we're not worried about maxing out the number of subscribers we have so overall i guess this comes down to refining our skills as a as podcasters it's about really staying true to what we want or, or finding out what is the essence of this podcast and i think we both believe that if we can create 
a really strong podcast that we enjoy doing that that has an audience, even if it's a small audience, but that audience loves it and is really engaged, then those the monetization and, and the audience building will flow from that um, in the second season. And the other the other goal that we had uh, here is to, well, obviously complete all 12 episodes of this season. And then we want to actually launch a second podcast following this season called The Council. And we're going to talk about that a bit more in later podcasts and, and that'll be, it'll become a bit more clear what that is. But um, this really for us is a, is a setup. We want to learn as much as we can about podcasting so that we're really ready to jump into our, our second podcast. Well, thanks, Natasha, so much for coming on today. It was so great to have you. Remember, if you haven't gone out and purchased one or all of her books yet, to go do that right now. Go find them. Get them purchased. They're great. I own them. I have them on my bookshelf at home. And uh, again, we're really, really proud of her and excited to have had her on as our second guest. So thank you, Natasha Nian, for coming on. Today's podcast was made possible by my magnanimous patrons whose contributions directly impact the future of all of this madness. They are the best. And if you're one of them, thank you. Seriously, thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart. Building the Oracle is mixed and produced by Zach Egan, co-hosted by Richard Bilkey, mascotted proudly by his four-legged friend Gustav, and is written and hosted by yours truly. Our theme music is Glory by David Cutter, who you can also find and support directly on Patreon, and I highly recommend you do that. And our newsletter is assembled with love by our own Kate Weber. Don't forget, you can support us at patreon.com slash jswanson whenever that itch grows too strong to resist. Don't forget to rate and review Building the Oracle on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts, or Gustav will delete your Fortnite account. My name is Jay Swanson, and thank you again for listening. Do back in in two weeks for our next guest, Lindsay Tremuda. Until then, keep making bad shit.